Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we are going to talk about a very important topic and a new book that's out called Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. And I'm so excited to have the author of this book and an expert in the field, especially on this subject. So welcome to the Loopcast, Jessica Davis. Thanks for having me, Chelsea. So for our listeners, Jessica is the president and principal consultant at Insight Threat Intelligence. She also has a very wide history and career, 17 years in Canadian security and intelligence sector, and she began with the Canadian Forces and transitioned to roles at Global Affairs Canada, FinTech, and also the Canadian Security Intelligence Services. She also has a previous book, if anyone's interested in learning about women in modern terrorism from liberation wars to global jihad and the Islamic State. So perfect person to talk about this with her very wide and also detailed interest in the field and expertise, excuse me. So I'm just so excited to get into this new book that you have out so why don't we start off with discussing, like, why did you decide to write this book? It's, it's a huge topic and a big one to tackle. Yeah, it's a huge topic. Um, one of the main reasons that I decided to, to write this book is that there have been a number of really good uh, books and articles written about terrorist financing, but there wasn't anything that was bringing it all together. Um, and so in, in my work in the government and then afterwards in, in private consulting, I was often asked, you know, for resources about terrorist financing, you know, what people could read to really learn more. And I was really missing this overarching piece that I really wanted to recommend to people. So I decided to write it. Um, I also wanted to sort of update some of the other literature that's, that's come out with really important topics like financial technology stuff. Um, we do so much of our banking and our, on, uh, and our lives these days online. And the same thing is true for terrorists and extremists. So I really wanted to sort of explore that issue. And then there's also a couple of, I think, really significant gaps in the literature or perhaps issues that were underexplored, um, particularly things like the difference between operational and organizational level financing. So the difference between how groups or movements finance their activities and how uh, terrorist attacks are actually financed, uh, which has important policy implications as well. Um, and then just also a lack of an overall typology of terrorist financing. So when you read a lot of the literature on financing, it's really heavily focused on how terrorist actors raise funds, but this is only one piece of the puzzle. We really need to, to, to understand financing. You really need to certainly understand how they raise money, but then you also need to understand how they um, move, use, manage, store, and obscure their funds. So the whole spectrum of activities that happens in that financing space. So there was a lot of reasons to write the book, um, but th those are the main ones, I think. And how did you go about your research? So what type of research methods or data did you use for the, the book? I started with what the historians that I've trained with uh, would call would call the method of, of research, which is a thorough and comprehensive examination of the extant literature. So, you know, just a massive lit review to start with, um, basically reading everything that I could get my hands on that related to terrorist financing, no matter sort of how peripheral. Um, but then I also decided that 
that wasn't sufficient in terms of understanding the literature. And then, so I went on and started doing a bit more case study research. So really delving deep into cases of group financing and also cases of attack financing. So I think ultimately I ended up with about 50 uh, groups or movements that I looked at and then 50 attacks and plots. And, and I separated those out specifically for both successful attacks and, and failed or disrupted plots. Um, because a lot of the information about the financing isn't actually in the financing literature. It's held in sort of the more specialized literature on the groups or, or the actual attacks themselves. So I really needed to go through and pull out that information to, to build out that typology and to answer all of the questions that I had about that. So, you know, it was overall, I would say, largely a case study methodology. I do some, some basic descriptive statistics as well to sort of get a sense of well, really to build a base, a quantitative baseline of what groups are using what methods and, and how often we're observing that. Although I will say that that is really just the quantification of qualitative information. And we shouldn't be drawing too, too many, you know, concrete lessons from that. It's just more to establish a sense of how groups are, are raising money and where perhaps policy priorities should lie. So on that note, how do terrorists obtain their funds? I know this is a big question and there's multiple ways, but let's get into that a bit. Yeah, I think this is maybe two or three chapters in the book. Yeah. Um, so I think the easiest way to think about this is, you know, certainly to break it down into um, illicit and illicit activities. So um, anybody who's familiar with the crime terror nexus literature will, will definitely recognize that terrorists absolutely raise funds from criminal activities. So those criminal activities could be things like um, robbery, theft, uh, taxation and extortion activities, if they're in a position to control or exert influence in a particular region, that's more sort of the level of, of groups. Um, they'll also engage in things like um, protection rackets, gambling, um, prostitution rackets. So, so like really any kind of criminal activity is open to groups. Um, and, and to individual actors as well. And so we've seen quite a, quite a variety of criminal activities in that space. And then there's also the more illicit or perhaps some of the, some, what we could describe as existing in more of a gray zone. Some of that would be uh, state sponsorship. So there are still a number of states that sponsor terrorist organizations, obviously Iran and the Hezbollah-Hamas relationships are, are two that come to mind right off the top of the top of our heads. But there's also a number of other states that may have used like their intelligence services, for instance, to fund particular groups or movements over time. Um, and then there's also what I call identity-based support networks. So this encompasses a, a huge range of activities. Um, what some people might have called diaspora financing. So having, um, you know, the LTTE is a really good example of this, where they asked and or insisted that um, members of the Tamil diaspora contribute funds to, to the terrorist organization, the LTTE. Um, but I don't like to use the term diaspora financing because it really, it implies a level of consent that I think is inappropriate. So, you know, to, to fall back on the LTTE example again, if we call that diaspora financing, it really paints the entire diaspora as financing the LTTE, whereas like a lot of that activity was really much more like extortion. Um, so, you know, I think we need to be a bit more precise in our language, but there are some examples of 
identity-based support networks that are specifically trying to fund uh, terrorist activity. So there's, um, you know, some some interesting examples from the Somali diaspora, small groups of of Somalis who have wanted to fund Al Shabaab, for instance. Um, but again, that's that's really more of that identity-based support networks rather than diaspora financing. Um, so those are a few of the ways that terrorists raise money. I think overall, though, when we think about terrorists, groups, and even individuals or, or small cells, when they're financing their activities or when they're funding it, rather, they're really drawing on the economic activity where they are. So if that economic activity involves or creates the opportunity for criminal activity, that may be something that they use. If they have lots of individuals with lots of money in their networks, they may rely more on donations or even in some cases, self-financing of particularly attacks. So that's sort of your overall scheme of, of how that happens. No, I think that was a great overview because like you said, there's many different ways this all takes place. And I know that when you read the literature and talk about this topic, a lot of people discuss charitable donations or charitable abuse. And I know you have a section in the book on this and I wanted to hear about that somewhat. Yeah, the charities piece is, is such an important and interesting conversation, um, particularly, I mean, for a number of reasons. So for, for your listeners who may not be familiar with it, um, there's an organization called the Financial Action Task Force, who's the global norm setter, really, for counter-terrorist financing policies and practices at the national level. And they have a recommendation that, in, that says that um, charitable organizations basically need to take initiative to prevent their abuse by terrorist organizations or actors. And this has had a lot of knock-on effects in terms of civil society and nonprofit and charitable organizations. You know, some argue, argue that it creates an undue burden on them. Um, I argue that terrorist abuse of the charitable sector is probably one of the more overblown areas of terrorist financing or overstated areas of terrorist financing. Um, so I think that there's maybe a bit of dis disproportionality between the global recommendation and the practice of terrorist actors. So what I mean by that really is that, yes, there have been, there are plenty of cases where terrorist organizations have and continue to perhaps establish charity, charitable organizations to solicit donations. Um, basically, those are front organizations. There are other cases where terrorists have um, identified a position in a, a person in a position of control or influence within the organization and encouraged them to divert funds or other resources to the group. There are cases where individuals or terrorist groups have just used a charitable cause without an actually structured organization to raise funds. So uh, some examples that listeners might be familiar with would be um, soliciting donations for, and I'm using air quotes here, orphans in Syria. Um, certainly, there were lots of charities that were were very reasonably trying to raise money for orphans in Syria, but that's the kind of thing that was also used as sort of an excuse or a front cause for some terrorist groups. Um, so this all happens, but the extent to which charities are really abused by terrorist organizations, I think, is one of those things that has created lots of harms in, in the charitable and civil society sector. Um, created lots of burdens on, on those actors. And so one of the things that I do in my professional work is 
I do work with civil society organizations, charities and nonprofits to help them understand how terrorist organizations have or terrorists have abused these organizations in the past to help them prevent, create essentially um, tools within their own organizations to prevent that from happening. And it's really simple stuff. So it really just comes down to having good internal controls on money, doing good due diligence on beneficiaries, that kind of thing. But, um, but the burden on these organizations is real and perhaps disproportionate to the actual threat. And I think that's really important to highlight since that does come up in a lot of discussions on this topic, unfortunately. Um, why don't we also talk about how terrorist groups manage, store, and also hide their funds? Because moving the money is just as important as gaining it and obtaining it. Yeah, so I think if there's a second sort of tier in terms of what the terrorist financing literature talks about, it the first one is obviously how they raise money. The second one is how they move money. And just to go over that quickly and to talk about one of the more sort of fraught areas in, in that literature, um, terrorists will basically move money in whatever ways they have available to them. So if you're in a highly digital economy, you're going to see things like cryptocurrencies, financial technologies, uh, email money transfers, electronic wires, that kind of thing. If you're in an economy that isn't heavily digitized, terrorists will use things like cash couriers, um, perhaps trade-based money laundering techniques, um, and in a lot of cases, hawala. Uh, which is what I really wanted to spend a bit of time talking about because Hawala, which is a, an informal value transfer system, has probably been one of the most vilified money movement systems in the world. Um, there's been a lot of allegations about terrorist use of Hawala and how bad it is and how, how detrimental it is to the global economy. Um, but again, I think this is one of those overblown areas. Like, yes, absolutely terrorists use Hawala networks to move money because that's a fast, cheap, reliable way to move money. And millions and millions of people, probably billions of people use Hawala to move money. So um, it's not necessarily that Hawala is the problem. I think the issue is really around what, 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 what people will tell you the issue is, is around the lack of regulation of these networks. But at the same time, the research that I've done here in this book really demonstrates that while hawalas are used to move money by terrorists, so are banks. Banks continue, you know, formal financial institutions continue to be used and exploited by terrorists, groups, cells, and individuals to move money for their organizational needs and for their operational needs. In fact, I think that's the number one way that terrorists continue to move money because, you know, they're, they're global, they're networked, they're reliable. So all of the things that we sort of see as being potentially negative in Hoala also exist in the formal financial system. And, and Marika de Goet has great language around this in, in her book on speculative security, I think it was, about how some of the, the qualities of Hoala are exactly what the global financial, formal financial system aspires to be. Um, so, you know, I think it's just one of those other ways that's, that's a little bit disproportional, disproportionate in terms of how we look at it. And of course, you know, just taking that Western view and, and imposing it on other financial systems has a whole host of other, other issues with it as well. Um, but, you know, if, I, if, I, if there's one thing that I want to take people to, to understand when we talk about how terrorists move money is that, yes, Hawala and cash couriers are used, but there's still significant use of the formal system. And 
the, the vulnerabilities continue to exist there. When we talk about the other components of financing, so the other mechanisms being things like how the management of funds, I think this is where we start to get into underexplored areas of terrorist financing. Um, so this actually really draws a lot on, on my work in, in government and security and intelligence work, um, where I was intimately involved in, in looking at the details of both terrorist plots and, and attacks and also organizational financing. And, and it really became clear to me that there were management structures around certainly terrorist organizations uh, in terms of their finances. So some organizations will choose to centralize the management of their funds in one or two people. But most of the time, um, terrorists will actually try to expand that to have multiple financial managers, depending on how the organizations are structured. If they have like a regional, um, if they have regional leadership, they'll often have regional level money managers who then report up to a more centralized um, committee or leadership. And there's a couple of functions here that are really important. One is redundancy. So making sure that not one person has complete control over, over the money. You know, terrorists are just like the rest of us to a certain extent in that they are also susceptible to corruption and internal disputes. So they also take measures to try to create uh, safeguards within those organizations. The thing that's interesting about the management of funds certainly is organizationally, there's lots of interesting things that happen. It creates interesting opportunities for disruption um, from a counterterrorism perspective. But then when we look at plots and, and cells, they also employ money management strategies. Um, and this is a little bit more nuanced as well, or bring, brings a little bit more nuance to the conversation. Because I think most of the time it's been assumed that there's just sort of like one charismatic leader, or maybe a couple of uh, leaders. But the financial piece is also really important because it really speaks directly to capabilities of the cell. If you don't have a good money manager or somebody who's not really thinking through the budgeting process of your attack or plot, you're much less likely to succeed. Um, an interesting case of this was the, the disrupted plot of the Toronto 18 cell. I, I've written a separate article on this. So there's lots and lots of detail from the court cases in that article. But basically what ended up happening is that this this overall plot ended up breaking up into two different sort of subplots. One of them had somebody who was doing a lot of detailed budgeting and planning around what they wanted to do. And the other one did not have that capability. And one of those plots advanced much, much further than the other one did. And it involved a whole host of really interesting procurement activities, you know, trying to get access to fertilizer, the creation of, um, basically a, a cover story for that procurement, calling themselves student farmers, having t-shirts printed up, having business cards made up, um, storage of funds and cash and US dollars and detailed planning around escape plans and like costs of all of that. Um, and, and this is actually fairly common that, that there are in terrorist plots, there's often people who are involved in that detailed level of planning and it speaks directly to their level of success. But it also provides very important information in terms of indicators and warning. You know, where is, how far advanced is a plot? If they're just talking about particular activities, that's one thing. But if they are starting to undertake procurement activities or a detailed budgeting plan, that's a whole other level of preparation. So that's why I think the management piece is important.
No, that's fascinating, especially the Toronto 18 and how two different stories turned out two very different ways based on the planning and managing of funds, really. Um, I know in the book, you, as you mentioned earlier as well in the talk, that you break down organizational financing and operational financing. And I want to just discuss this. What are the differences and why are these distinctions important when looking at terrorist financing in general? The interesting thing about organizational versus operational planning is that a lot of the activities are really quite similar. So, you know, we'll see the raising of funds, certainly. The scope and scale, though, is is quite a bit different. So for terrorist organizations, we're often talking hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in terms of what they are raising or at least trying to raise. Whereas for cell, for plots, for, for cells and individuals seeking to conduct attacks, we're talking about far smaller amounts of money. So sometimes it's hundreds of dollars on the upper end of things, maybe tens of thousands of dollars um, with some of the most expensive ranging into the hundreds of thousands of dollars, but that, that being quite rare in terms of the cost of, of terrorism. Um, but they both organizations and cells and individuals also undertake the other mechanisms of financing. So they'll manage their money, they'll store funds, they'll try to under, use um, tradecraft, financial tradecraft to hide the source and de- destination of those funds. Um, but the scope and scale is quite different. And it, I think all of this really speaks to the counterterrorism financing side of things. Because if we look at our global policies and practices around counterterrorist financing, they were really designed certainly in the 9-11 era, to combat centralized terrorist organizations and their financing. So the assumption really was, you know, we've got these terrorist organizations, particularly Al-Qaeda being the number one, and they raise a bunch of money, and then they fund a bunch of plots and attacks with that money. And so we designed a bunch of policies and practices around trying to stop that activity. But what we've seen happen over the last 20 years is really a shift in how terrorist attacks are funded. Instead of that centralized funding coming down from the terrorist organization, you're much more likely to see individuals who are associated to perhaps a terrorist group, um, often an extremist movement, who are self-funding their plots and attacks. So tying the organization directly financially to their actual attack plans becomes much more difficult. And in a lot of cases, those are non-existent links. So what does this mean for policy? It means that things like having our financial intelligence units looking at having mandatory reports of international wire fund, wire transfers of $10,000 or more, that might work when we're talking about counter-terrorist financing for a terrorist organization but it will almost certainly not work when we're talking about an attack that's being self-funded within a country, as, you know, as one sort of example. So, you know, there's a lot of daylight between our policies and practices and the actual funding of attacks, which, you know, I think while it's important to sort of counter the financing of a terrorist organization or movement, because, you know, that creates propaganda, creates that sort of where all of the, a lot of this stuff comes from. There's, they're really poorly applied to the actual operational side of things. And I think that's where we need as a global community to start 
really focusing our efforts in terms of understanding those differences. And how do we go about doing that? I know that when discussing sort of tracing the money, the idea of financial footprints and habits of individuals can really help with this. But as you said, the focus has largely been on bigger organizations and tracking money associated with them. But when we're coming down to maybe a small group of people, how, how can we do that? Because it sounds difficult to say the <laughs> least. Yeah, and I definitely don't have all of the answers from a policy perspective here. I think that there's a lot of work that still needs to be done, both from, from my own work and, and work from other people and sort of thinking through these problems. But, you know, I think one of the things that I would point to is the use of financial intelligence. So a lot of financial intelligence is developed or created rather um, through those mandatory reports that I, I just outlined, that $10,000 transaction. Um, but suspicious transaction reports are also very useful. So making sure that our banks and reporting entities like money service businesses like Western Union, uh, MoneyGram have up-to-date information about what terrorist financing actually looks like, uh, that can really help with those suspicious transactions. But I think that there's also a huge piece here in terms of really training investigators to understand these differences and to really understand the actual mechanisms involved in financing, which again, really speaks to part of why I wrote this book. Um, because, you know, a lot of the investigators that I've worked with over, over time have really been looking for those international funds transfers to point to terrorist financing. But that's, you know, it, that's, not, that's not how this happens, if it ever was how it happens. So we're missing a lot of opportunities to identify really low levels of financing that Maybe we're not going to pursue like a terrorist financing prosecution over them, but are those indicators in terms of where that planning process is and, and even potentially identifying broader networks if they're sharing money um, through the network. So there's a lot of different opportunities there, you know, particularly if we look very closely at how attacks are funded or, and financed and then derive our policies from that evidence base. Um, you know, this is easier said than done. You can't just turn the, the financial action task force ship around overnight in terms of what it's recommending globally. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunities there to really refine our approaches and maybe get better outcomes that are perhaps more proportional to what we, what we want to see and, and maybe help to eliminate some of those unintended consequences, like what we were talking about in terms of the charitable sector and some of the burdens on them. And taking from your experience with women involved in terrorist activities, and also, unfortunately, not as much being written on women involved in terrorism and violent extremism. I mean, it's getting better, but still, it's sort of an overlooked issue. How are women used, utilized in terrorist financing? I know you discuss this in the book, and I think it's a really important issue to discuss. This is one of those things that, despite having written my first book, Women in Modern Terrorism, I was actually still surprised by the number of women who were involved in uh, the financing piece. And it wasn't one of those, it wasn't a section that I identified right away as being what I was going to, something that I was going to write about. It really came out later through the course of the case studies and, and a whole bunch of information that I was collecting um, to really talk about that as like its own, own trend and issue. Um, so when we think about women in terrorism, you know, we'll often think about women 
as kinetic actors as sort of one of their more visible roles. So suicide bombers is an obvious one, um, but even for plots and attacks, other roles for them, that's sort of where we see them as being visible. Um, I think their role in potentially leadership is a bit more contested and certainly less visible. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. Um, but financing is one of those things that I think a lot of people assume is a male dominated space. But when you look at cultures around the world, you know, women have a significant role to play a lot of the time in, in managing household budgets, um, certainly in terms of community engagement. And the same thing is true for terrorist actors. So over the last number of years, and like I, I will caveat this by saying that I've just recently started looking at this. So while I think this is a new trend, it may, may predate um, my observations of this, but I do think that there's been an increasing role for women as financial facilitators of terrorism. So roles like potentially being those, those touch points for identity-based support networks, soliciting funds directly from those communities. Um, in other cases, potentially role, having roles in terms of managing a terrorist organization's funds. Although, again, it's one of those things that I think they may have more of a role than we think there because there's a lot of tendency to downplay the role of women in terrorist organizations by both some media and, and researchers, but also by the terrorist organizations themselves. So it's a bit difficult to get a, a clear read on, on what's happening there. Um, and then a lot of the times, one of the things that we saw, particularly in the Syrian conflict, is women proactively starting basically crowdfunding campaigns, maybe not using necessarily crowdfunding platforms, but soliciting those donations and then sending them to the terrorist organization in lieu perhaps of going and joining, for instance, um, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. Um, so those are the sort, of the, the sort of the roles that we've been seeing there. And um, I think that is a bit of an evolving space. Well, I look forward to seeing more research from you on this topic because I find it very interesting and also much needed. But another question I have, which may or may have some resonance, is has terrorist financing really changed over the years or is it more situational based and where you're located that influences how you finance your activities? This is sort of the, the, a question that I see as like a preamble to cryptocurrency, <laughs> which is, it is. Yes. the next up. question was, how is the new technology influencing? <laughs> so okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, I might take these together because that's a little bit of the piece. So I would say that over the course of, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, the functions or the mechanisms involved in terrorist financing have not changed. So we're still, you know, terrorists still need to raise, use, move, store, manage, and obscure their funds. Um, that is sort of a constant over time. What changes is the economies and financial systems that they're using to do that. Um, so, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they weren't using financial technologies, obviously, because they didn't exist. There was a much higher dependence in all economies on cash. Um, so that's one of the things that, that would be used more. So really, changes in tariff financing reflect the broader economy and financial systems that they're operating in and are not really driven very much by the terrorist actors themselves. You know, they're not the ones who are sort of pushing the envelope and becoming early adopters of new financial technologies. What we see instead is 
when those technologies come online, some terrorist actors and, and sometimes financiers within organizations will explore them, perhaps engage in proof of concept uh, transactions, trying to see sort of where the vulnerabilities and opportunities exist with those, with those technologies. But, but it's really just that evolution of the space and not a revolution. The one caveat that I'll put on this is the role of ideology in, um, you know, acceleration or anti-government terrorist or extremist movements and actors. They tend to have a bit more of an ideological affinity for things like cryptocurrency, you know, trying to move away from government controlled and government backed financial systems is part and parcel of that those idea those ideologies and those ideological underpinnings um, so they have a natural inclination to try to use things like bitcoin monero um, but it's still not a widespread adoption of this of those technologies i would say that there's still plenty of um, individuals and small cells in those spaces that are using a lot of cash um, sometimes exploiting the formal financial system for their own benefit um, and that kind of thing. So when I think about changes in the terrorist financing space, I really see it as whatever's happening in the countries in which they're operating will lead to changes in how they themselves operate. Um, but, you know, evolution, not revolution here. No, that's very interesting. And kind of on a practical basis, how should we look at the scope and scale of terrorist financing um, in both a realistic and practical way for both practitioners and researchers? I think that, you know, terrorist financing to me is the thing that makes terrorism happen. Um, Without financing, I would say that, you know, terrorists get stuck with super small organizations, an inability to produce uh, propaganda or high quality propaganda, lack of reach. They have lack of operational security. You know, it's difficult to, if you don't have any money, you can't be buying things like burner phones and replacing them or using some of the better um, technologies to hide hide yourself on the internet. Um, So from an organizational perspective, the lack of funding really limits how much they're able to influence other people. From an operational perspective, you know, lack of funding really limits the scope and scale of terrorist activity. We still see that we still we see terrorist actors who are basic who can execute an almost zero cost attack. They're pretty rare, but there are some very clear cases of it. Um, and this generally involves things like a knife attack. Um, or using materials that they already have in their possession. In some jurisdictions, this could include firearms, just depending on availability. Um, And I would also argue, though, that a firearm attack is almost never going to be a zero-cost attack because of the materials that you need to procure. Um, But maybe they already have them, and they've they've just turned them towards a terrorist purpose. But if we're talking about a stabbing attack, the ability of terrorists to inflict a high level of damage is really, really limited. When we start looking at things like improvised explosive devices, those things all start to have costs and have financial footprints associated with them that increases the chances of detection and disruption of those plots. So 
I think that when, when researchers and practitioners look at financing, they, they certainly need to look at how it limits or enhances capabilities of terrorist actors at the organizational and operational levels, um, how it affects their ability to create propaganda and opportunities for really limiting that funding. I think it's unreasonable to think that we're ever going to get to a zero dollars for terrorism situation. I think that that's, you know, it, it's it's like trying to plug all the holes in, in Swiss cheese and, you know, something's going to get through at some point in time, which is fine. I think the idea is to just push that down to the absolute lowest level possible to reduce the ability of terrorists to conduct high complexity, high casualty attacks. That makes a lot of sense. Money really <laughs> makes the world go round, even in terrorism, unfortunately. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But we like to give our guests a moment at the end of the talk, if time permits, to maybe touch on something that we haven't touched on. I mean, there's so much in the book. I do recommend listeners that are interested in this topic to do the deep dive, get the book, read it, because it's, it's fantastic. But um, I wanted to hand over the floor to you in case there's something that you'd like to add or something that we just haven't touched on that you think is important. Yeah, I think I would just emphasize uh, some of the some of the issues that we've already talked about and touched on some of the other questions and it's this whole issue around the cost of terrorism and why and whether or not our counter terrorist financing policies and practices have failed i think we we haven't really got a very good measure or um, understanding of the outcomes and effects of counter terrorist financing policies and practices over the last 20 years i'm working on that as part of my dissertation research so in you know three to ten years, so I'll have something published on that. Um, but when we think about terrorist financing and counter-terrorist financing, these things are obviously in- intimately linked. I think it's important to be very clear and precise in terms of what we're talking about. So you know, I've heard criticisms that counter-terrorist financing has been ineffective because you know the cost of terrorism is so low. But counter-terrorist financing is made up of a lot more, many more activities than just reducing the amount of money available to terrorists. It's also about the financial intelligence that you can derive from the very small numbers of transactions that terrorists undertake or the purchases that they make in advance of their, of their plots and attacks. Um, it's also about using financial intelligence or financial information to identify perhaps um, military strikes if we're in a conventional conflict and and this is an opportunity that's available to us, you know, thinking about targeting from a kinetic perspective um, in counter-terrorist financing as well. And there's also lots of other approaches, um, you know, things like civil law can be used as well to target or um, try to disrupt perhaps front organizations that, um, you know, law enforcement or security services haven't been successful at disrupting uh, the civil standard of evidence is obviously quite a lot lower than uh, the criminal standard. So perhaps there are opportunities there. So when we think about counter-terrorist financing, I think it's important to think about all of the different approaches that are really encompassed in that broad umbrella and not just focus or cherry pick rather one or two different little pieces of that and then talk about that as if it's the, the entirety of counter-terrorist financing. I think that's those are wise words to end the show on. And for our listeners, 
Once again, the book is called Illicit Money, Financing Terrorism in the 21st Century. And thank you so, so much for sharing your expertise and um, discussing this really important topic. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a real pleasure. Likewise.